What are some of the hot topics, right? Anti-Asian bias, Black Lives Matter, reproductive freedom, gender equality, LGBTQ, economic freedom, social inequality, so forth and so on, access to healthcare. All of these topics are human rights topics. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Laura Liguri, is the founder and executive director of MindBridge, which works to apply psychological and neurobiological research to human rights. She's working to understand, bridge, and solve conflicts between groups. Before MindBridge, Laura worked at the Sachs Lab Social Cognitive Neuroscience Laboratory at MIT. I asked her about her path to founding MindBridge and how her work applies to political polarization in the U.S. So, first my sponsor, then my interview with Laura Liguri of MindBridge. Hey, great Battlefield listeners. My name is Jenna Spinelli, and I host a podcast called Democracy Works. It's a show that examines what it means to live in a democracy and how we continue to sustain a healthy democracy amid challenges like misinformation and polarization. Recently, we've talked with Liliana Mason about radical American partisanship and with Peter Pomerantsev about how democracies can win the war on reality. If you enjoy the Great Battlefields discussion with people working to advance democracy on the ground, I think you'll enjoy our conversations about why this work is so important. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Find it at democracyworkspodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, so I am Laura Liguori. I'm the executive director of MindBridge. So MindBridge is a nonprofit organization that's dedicated to harnessing neuroscience and psychology in support of human rights. Where'd you grow up, Laura? I grew up in New Jersey, <laughs> actually. So not far from New York City. I was about an hour south of New York City, so Eastern Seaboard. Tell me a little about the education you got along the way. Oh, my goodness. My path to this work is something a crazy circuitous path. And, uh, and I think we could probably be here for the entire time if I gave you like every single post. I went to a high school in New Jersey where I was uh, really one of the only Hispanic kids in my school. You know, my family was very much West Side Story. So my mom, Puerto Rican, my dad, Sicilian, and, uh, and having to negotiate everything that came from the eras in which they grew up in. And so I think for them moving to Central Jersey from the city, my mom uh, grew up in Puerto Rico, moved to the Bronx, South Bronx. My dad was uh, grew up on the Lower East Side of New York City. That for them moving to like Middle Jersey was uh, like, you know, this incredible thing. You could move to the suburb and and all of these tremendous opportunities. And in a lot of way, it really was. Uh, It was a great school system. I learned a lot. And for me at that time, 
I was massively culturally isolated. I meet a lot of Hispanic people my age who don't fluently speak Spanish. Um, and, and for some of us, that was our family's attempt to have us assimilate into the mainstream culture, i.e. white culture. And um, so I didn't talk a lot about that when I was in school. I think my friends just kind of saw me as being a little bit distant and probably a little weird. But it was largely because I was having a hard time connecting and finding myself and my identity during that time. Once high school ended, there was a few rounds of school. So tried school for a little bit. I was a musician. Wasn't a great fit. I left. Um, I wound up kind of being a hippie in a VW van and, you know, went across the country for a while, <laughs> which was great fun. Um, and, you know, fortunately at that time also got to meet uh, a lot of incredible people and a lot of different cultures and lifestyles and life experiences that would eventually send me back into school and graduate school, which I think is really where the catalyst came for the work that I'm doing now. Uh where was graduate school and what were you studying? I had decided to go uh, and do my graduate work in anthropology. So for some years, I had been working with Arab organizations, and especially in New York City. I knew about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict a lot from their perspective. Um, and for graduate work, I decided to study the other side of the coin. So I wanted to go into Brandeis University. So I went to Brandeis um, and I was anthropologist trying to find what I wanted to do when I grew up. My background was in music and dance, and I was a performer for a good long time as I traveled around the country. So when I landed at Brandeis and I was in anthropology, I met a professor who was putting together an anthology around using theater as a lay form of trauma therapy. It sounded like a cool project. And she said, hey, Laura, you know, you've been involved with Arab communities for a long time. Um, and, you know, would you be interested in potentially working with um, uh, one for the Arts, which was a, is a theater group in either refugee camp in the West Bank? Uh, and, uh, and I was like, sure, that sounds fun. Why not? You know, and um, so I was also at the time uh, a Schusterman scholar. So the Schusterman Center for Israel Studies is um, on campus, and they're kind of one of the, the preeminent centers for Israel studies and academic orientation. And at the time, we were every other day having the conversation about, um, is it possible to have a two-state solution in Israel? In the Schusterman Center, it was really like this incredible nexus where you would see politicians come through, you would see academics come through, you would see Mossad agents come through, you would see all sorts of different people. Um, and you also felt acutely the pain and the fear and the trauma. And for most people that I talked to, the two-state solution wasn't possible. Around that time, we were fortunate to have a scholar in residency, um, Daniel Bartal. And Daniel Bartal is one of the foremost psychological experts in the underlying cognitive mechanisms that sustain and promote protracted conflict. So he's from Israel and had done a ton, a ton of research. He had recently put out an article uh, surveying the Israeli public about this. Hey, how about a two-state solution? So he went out and surveyed quite a representative sample. This is an incredible study. And it came back saying, yes, look, all these people said, yes, peace is possible, two-state solution is possible. 
So that wasn't quite my experience in talking to the people at the Schusterman Center. So um, being a good anthropologist, <laughs> I just kind of got up, walked across the, the street, went into the building where he was at and walked into his office and, and asked him about this. Uh, and he was very sweet. He was very kind. Um, and in so many kind words, told me why I was wrong. And to his credit, you know, the data said what it said. That was the finding that he got. So I said, okay. So with the anthology, um, it was time for me to go and do my preliminary field work in Israel. So this wasn't the like year-long field work, the Margaret Mead field work that anthropologists do, but this was kind of go, get your feet wet, meet people, um, see if your dissertation topic is right. So I showed up in Israel and I was living in Tel Aviv and I would journey out to all over the place in Israel, but predominantly out to Jerusalem and then into the West Bank and then back. And so I would try to meet with members of Al-Wad and I would come back and I would try to meet with members of Habina National Theater of Israel. And so while I was doing all this, um, like any good anthropologist, I popped out and drummed up conversations with people and, you know, would talk to people about their lives and their experience. And I would interweave these questions from uh, Bartal's survey and the answers were always the same. And they actually mimicked Bartal's survey results saying, yeah, peace is possible, two-state solutions, sure. And I was really surprised. And I, and I thought, wow, I must be wrong. I guess I was wrong. Okay. Um, and so then while I was there, the Welcome to Palestine campaign happened. So this was roughly 2011. And um, what I think later they would describe as the flightilla uh, into the area. So at the time, um, Palestinian activists were feeling like media attention had waned um, and they really wanted to gather up energy and momentum and in getting the international eye back onto the conflict to try to facilitate peace talks. And so in an effort to do this, activists had uh, organized European activists to fly into Israel. And when you come to the gate, when you're asked by the soldier at the gate, why are you here? This is a common question, so why are you here? That they would announce, I'm here to visit Palestine. And normally, if you say, and you show up and say, I'm here to visit Palestine, they're gonna put you on the plane back to where you came from. And in fact, that's what happened. So hundreds and hundreds of activists flew into Israel, announced upon arrival that they were here to visit Palestine. And I, I think it was something like 600 activists. It was, it was an incredible amount of people that did this. Wow, the response was really something. And you know, Netanyahu described it as, as a terrorist um, attack. The feeling was like this was the third intifada. So you would see tanks rolling through Tel Aviv. You saw people piling up sandbags all over the place. There was definitely this, this enormous fear. Um, and little did I know, I had actually been sitting in the kitchen of the main organizer in the West Bank just a week before. And so this was all unfolding in front of me. And so I picked up and I ran back out um, and I started asking the questions again. And this time the answers were night and day different. Peace was not possible. There would never be a two-state solution. And I remember this one woman who was really angry um, turning to me and said, and I quote, are you kidding? The streets will run red with our blood. And so that event and a few other things that happened while I was there really highlighted to me that there was a limit to what we could get with surveys. There was a limit to self-report. 
and that we in some way had one conscious narrative and that the entire time was this other narrative and all it needed was the trigger. And so other events that I won't take the time to get into, but other events also pointed out at this idea that not only was this their, this sub-narrative the whole time, that most likely this sub-narrative was influencing behavior the entire time and people just were not conscious of it. And so I had a real choice at that point. I didn't have the language around this at that time. I just knew that the tools I had wasn't enough to get into this psychological realm. And that in as much as I love that kind of deep ethnographic process, it wasn't really going to bring me to the place that I wanted to go. So I returned back to the States and I left my PhD program. I walked into the psych program, which I, I will never, ever suggest that anybody do. It was in the long run, it was a great idea, but it was, it was pro- possibly one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. It was the equivalent of picking me up and dropping me in a foreign country where I didn't speak the language and expecting me to like actively contribute to something. So I dropped into psych and uh, I didn't know what I was doing. I was trying to figure out what the heck fire and Innova was and how do you even do research. When while I was there, a friend of mine um, comes running down the hallway. It's like brown, dark, and where they were doing, you know, psychological experiments were um, ironically in the basement of this building. And so she like, you know, emerges from the darkness with this page just waving in hand. And she says, this guy is you. And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) So I take the paper and I look to see the main author. The main author is Emile Bruno and he's studying empathy and perspective taking. And the paper was behavioral, but it cited all of this beautiful fMRI research that he had done. And I was enthralled because all the questions he was asking were exactly the questions I had, but but said a lot better because he was far more experienced. And he was looking at all of these implicit processes in this incredibly nuanced way. And I went, oh my goodness, where is he? <laughs> How can I talk to him? They cite where, where people are from in these papers. And I, and I thought, oh, he must be in Stanford. You know, with my luck, he's like all the way on the other side of the country. Um, but uh, to my delight, he was at MIT. And so I just started showing up. So I just started showing up to the lab. He was a postdoc at the time at the Sachs Lab for Social Cognitive Neuroscience at MIT. And we used to joke and this was one of those half-hearted jokes where you kind of knew it was the truth um, that he was running a shadow lab. And that was essentially it. He kind of had his own enclave um, where he was studying um, the neurobiological mechanisms that develop and sustain violent conflict. And so I just started showing up. And, um, and eventually the lab wound up hiring me. They needed somebody who had some language and some cultural expertise because they were developing all of these studies, both in Israel and occupied territories, as well as with the Department of Defense and with the EU and all these large population-wide studies. And so the deal was basically, I come in as the cultural expert and they will teach me neuroscience. Darn, yes, of course I'm going to do that, right? And, um, you know, sitting at the the feet of the guru here. And so, um, so it was really amazing. And um, and so I got to dive in headfirst into this extraordinary realm of implicit cognition, 
how that creates behavior, how that creates violence, and how that translates to these entire populations at a clip. And I think importantly for Mindbridge, I also got to see how that research um, was often ignored or not properly applied or was often only accessible to those who had the money to do so. It would eventually guide me to creating Mindbridge. That switch that flipped in the population in Israel that you were interviewing after the trigger of activists coming and Netanyahu labeling it terrorists and people getting afraid of another intifada. Can you help me understand that? Like what happened from your now studied point of view in neuroscience? Like there's a big change just in how people answer a question. And we, we know in, in polling and lots of times, like whatever came before can really change what someone's answer is. Like even the, the order of questions in a survey can matter. And certainly something that brings fear up in the population is going to change people's answers. And I don't know for how long, but clearly you saw something major happening. Help me understand what happened in their brains. Yeah, no, it's interesting in kind of 2020 hindsight. So I'm linking this a bit to kind of a larger literature because, you know, we don't have a time machine and can't go back and scan people retroactively. There's the social ecological effect, right? There's the idea that something happens and that immediately is going to impact you, right? You might get primed. You might see a commercial about chocolate chip cookies and then suddenly, big surprise, two hours later, you're thinking you want a chocolate chip cookie, right? There's lots that can kind of orient us in a certain direction, it doesn't necessarily mean it's kind of these deeper narratives, but what I was picking up on um, and that I think we see in larger, you know, international discourse around conflict zones and progressive dynamics here in the United States and what have you, is that so much of what we do happens on an implicit realm. I think far more than what we give credit for and, and are really actively taking a look at. You know, at MindBridge, we talk about 40 to 90% of everything we do is unconscious. And we use the range because it largely depends on who you're reading. You know, whether you're looking at a study around heartbeat or breathing patterns, whether you're looking at the way in which you habitually sit at a desk, or whether you're looking at the way in which you might differentially treat somebody who looks different from you, 40 to 90%. And for those of us who have read, you know, Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow, Blink, you know, The Power of Habits, so and so on, like all of these books that have been out there, they all talk about the same thing, that roughly 90% of what we do is unconscious. And so, so much of this way in which we perceive and enact on the world acts beyond our conscious mind. So our life experiences, the social tropes and norms that exist, that we've grown up in, and that we're just kind of sitting in the stew of, all get cognitively encoded. And all of these happen in the background. And are often kind of funneled into the way in which we understand the world and we engage with each other. And given the right trigger, given the right impetus, those things will come screaming to the forefront. 
And that's what really happened in that case, where there were these deeper narratives there around conflict, around threat perception, around what we call mortality salience, or that kind of fear of imminent death, not only to yourself, but to your protracted group. You know, all the things that, in fact, Daniel Bartol had actually been studying and had written about were all there actively happening. You know, there's a lot of research that takes a look at the way in which we psychologically simulate the world constantly in in a process of anticipation. And so these processes were constantly being simulated, were constantly enacted, were constantly there in the background whispering. And it wasn't until an event that they came screaming to the forefront. And I think so, too, we see this within our society all the time, that we tend to talk about these events happening in isolation, when in fact they are deeply seated events that happen that have been unfolding for quite some time. We just hadn't been looking at our elephant. We hadn't been looking at the implicit unconscious processes. And so we missed it. Would it be very similar to like the Ukrainian population probably had far more mixed feelings about Russia until Russia attacks them? And then a huge proportion of that population must have switched in rallying around their country and against Russia. I mean, that's way more dramatic than what happened, but it sounds like a similar thing. Does it seem like that to you? Yeah. I mean, I think I'm going to kind of tease apart two different things for a second. So I'm going to tease apart narrative psychology or the stories that we tell ourselves. Like, what are the stories we tell ourselves that informs our beliefs and the lens that we understand the world by? And it might be, and I don't know is the honest answer. It might be that there might be these under, and there's so many stories. There's such an extraordinary history there, right? And, you know, all these moments of oppression and violence between Ukraine and Russia, that, that kind of story often doesn't die, but lies dormant until a moment that it it is resurrected. And we see this also within the United States, within our own racial discourse. And I'm going to point for a minute to like that 40 to 90%, and let's just say 90% for a second. There are all these extraordinary processes that work and that are fundamentally what make us human. And so it makes a lot of sense that at moments of distress, of violence, of imminent threat, that you orient around your group in a way that might ensure your survival. And so that sort of process runs deeply embedded into what we might know as like social identity theory. We are social animals like, whoa, we're the kind of social animal that has survived by forming and maintaining groups. And at one time, somebody asked Margaret Mead, you know, what's the sign of civilization? Like, what what shows that we are civilized man? And I think the interviewer was expecting that she was going to say, you know, the knife, the advent of fire, you know, farming. Um, But what she pointed out was a bone that was mended. And, And so for her, civilization was our ability to take care of each other. What she didn't talk about was that our ability to take care of each other is also largely invested in who that person is and whether they're part of our tribe. So empathy and our ability to see us versus them is deeply embedded in foundational neurobiological processes that have evolved over the hundreds of thousands of years 
of our evolutionary process. We are fundamentally going to move to the us when we feel threatened in that way. We saw that during masks and you know the advent of the pandemic. We had a very salient mortality threat there. We were in the face of our possible demise given, you know, this this invisible adversary and people immediately went to their corners. We saw this in Zika, we saw this in SARS, we saw this in Ebola. And so it wasn't really that surprising that we saw it in COVID-19 either. When faced with imminent threat, we're going to pull to our in-group in order to help to ensure our survival. One of the unsatisfying answers in psychology is that it's, it's often a both and and answer, that it's probably a little bit of both. Kind of that interaction between all of the narratives that are there that lie dormant over periods of time, kind of coupled with our foundational neurobiological processes that are with us in every moment because we're human. So you had alluded to starting this thing called MindBridge. This is after over eight years at that MIT cognitive neuroscience lab. What is the founding story there? How does one make a enterprise around the skills that you had built up over the time you've so far described? Yeah, <laughs> MindBridge sort of happened by accident. You know, my husband and I, um, so I was at MIT and, and he was at Harvard. So that sounds like that's this incredible thing. But the reality is that um, we never really saw our daughter. You were too busy, you mean? We were too busy. Yeah, yeah, we were too busy. And, you know, and for some people, like no shame or blame, like for some people, that's totally fine. That's their, that's their great path that they're on, you know. How old was this daughter? We were thinking about this strongly at three and we were moving into four at that point. As we were in the midst of this big debate, he was uh, then offered a position at Maine Medical Center in Maine, in Portland. Um, and so we decided just to jump. So uh, so he accepted the position. And and so I left MIT. And, um, and you know, truly at that point, I didn't know what I was going to do. Because the thing that I was doing didn't exist in Maine at that time. And so I was like, great, this will be the next chapter of my life start farming, I, you know, I'll do something else. I was trying to finish up some of my research projects from MIT because I wanted to be a good and responsible person. We made the move in 2016. So 2016 was also a year where human rights defenders were having something of an existential crisis, where people were really asking themselves, what is going to happen with this experiment known as human rights, you know, the rise of authoritarian governments, populist governments. We had the Rohingya genocide that was heralded as one of the worst instances of atrocious violence since World War II. It seemed like we were collectively losing at this point. And so everybody was just kind of beside themselves. And of course, no surprise, this was also the, the year that Trump was elected. I remember after Trump's election, um, as we kind of all were reeling from this, I got an email um, from my friend, David Marks. And David at the time uh, was part of the Office of Democratic Institutions and Human Rights, an intergovernmental office um, that's kind of an offshoot of the EU and helps to connect EU member states to human rights-based projects. And I had often been talking to him about having this new vision that the next path for human rights was going to be psychology and neuroscience. We wanted to change hearts and minds 
but we had no idea how to do it. And simultaneously, there were also, you know, hundreds and hundreds of labs looking at violent extremism and othering and racism and all these things. And very rarely did that research meet human rights defenders at all. And so there really wasn't this connection. When I was at MIT, we had worked with the EU on their decade of Roma inclusion. And so this was a really incredible example of of governments working with academics to try to instigate a new era in, in trying to correct the wrongs and violence that had been engendered against marginalized communities. But it was the EU. What was a small mom and pops organization going to do? Right? Like the EU could tap into MIT, right? What could small organizations do? So we have an existential crisis happening. We have an incredible knowledge base that wasn't being tapped. And we had a situation where people who could really employ this work, who could really use it on the ground of people risking their lives every day had no way to reach it. And so it was at that moment that David reached out to me. I remember him saying to me, he's like, I don't know where in the United States this Maine is, but you don't get to retire. You don't get to retire. He's like, you have talked to me about your passion around this. You have told me about your ideas. You have spoken to me about how you want to revolutionize this direction. We have some money for some new projects at Odeer. Make it happen. I was like, okay. (laughs) Good call. Holy smokes. (laughs) Right? (laughs) (laughs) You know, and really more than anything, I just didn't want to let David down. You know, like he was so emphatic. It's just such a support system. And and, um, it just meant so much to me to have him, you know, contact me in that moment when everybody was kind of collectively breaking down. And he was like, do this. So that's what really catalyzed Mindbridge. And so the name came from that, that hope to connect science to these directives, to human rights, and to make this work accessible. And that if we were going to change hearts and minds, we better know how to do it. Because there's plenty of times when you see it backfire horrifically. People think that they have an idea and they don't, and they go in the wrong direction and there are some very real violent consequences. So we're either not employing it or we're employing it kind of, and then there's a backfire effect. So it really became this, how are we going to transform this work that we're doing in a way that creates true long-term change? And and that became our goal. Well, it's uh, quite a goal, quite an ambitious one and a good one. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the engagements that you've then had through MindBridge to try to do this kind of thing? Oh, my goodness gracious. Yeah. So connecting neuroscience and psychology to human rights is something of an unwieldy spaghetti monster. There's a lot of directions you can go. And so I think we spent the first few years trying to develop what was the most effective way. And one of the Achilles heels, I'll tell you, was um, while there was an extraordinary amount of research, there wasn't a lot linking the research into application. So meaning that people had done this in the lab. They brought people in, they did it in the lab, 
They drew their conclusions, but actually applying it into the real world was something else (laughs) entirely. Um, And so MindBridge uh, decided that that was the direction we were going to go. We were going to actively do this. Somebody asked me, they're like, hey, Laura, can you create a training for implicit bias? I didn't know anything about that. And I was like, that sounds like an intervention. I've developed interventions for the last like five years. Cool. Let's see what we can do. Rather than orient people, there are a lot of implicit bias mitigation trainings. There's a lot of anti-racist trainings right now. There's a lot of trainings that orient around kind of the historical, cultural, political lens. We took a neuroscience psychology approach. So we fundamentally channeled decades of work on empathy and intergroup violence and extremism and identity and all these things and developed this long-term training that sought to create change from within and from that change, make the change happen in structural and institutions. So this became our implicit bias project. Based in neuroscience and psychology, it's a training program that uses the science to create long-term cognitive change with the people who partake in it, and that helps to catalyze those individuals out to change the structures and institutions, policies and practices that sustain inequality, oppression and harm. And so the Implicit Bias Project has become our education wing. And so this has been happening for a few years now. And we employ all sorts of really cool techniques that are either workshops to apps on our cell phone that use all sorts of which I I can't really talk about. Otherwise, it gives away the, the, the cognitive impact. But there's all these like cool toys that we use on people's cell phones that help to kind of create this cognitive change. And so that shifts into our equity implementation program. So this is the boots on the ground. For example, we worked with this one town, Lewiston and Auburn in Maine. They have a very large Somali population, refugee population. Um, And a series of events had led to um, the killing of a white individual um, by Somali youth. And the police at the time were afraid that this would erupt into racial violence. So they called on the federal government to try to intervene. This didn't quite work. And you could feel the the tremor of the potential of violence and animosity and racism. And so they called on us to come in and intervene. So we built essentially an intervention that developed into the city implementing cities, uh, Lewiston and Auburn, a series of measures to kind of transform the way in which equity, harm, racism was understood through the cities. But ultimately, underneath all of that, was us using neuroscience and psychology. We just rarely talked about it. So the neuroscience and psychology became the root bed of this transformation that took place on a very high citywide level. And so from there, we started working with other cities and tried to transform this kind of racialized violence that was happening in other cities in that way. So we work with lawyers who represent families that are victims of lynching. We work with groups that are trying to establish truth and reconciliation commissions within their cities. Um, We are trying to create the capacity by which that community can hear and be with this testimony such that it actually transforms the culture that's there. So it's a lot of like on the ground working with 
organizations and cities and government structures. Um, and then there's the research branch of things where we are trying to take a bunch of this cutting edge research that's happening in the labs and make it applicable. How can what we're learning about intergroup violence mitigation and pro-social behavior, developing pro-social behavior, help the situation in the Philippines where 10,000 people have died as a result of the war on drugs under Duterte's regime? How can what we are learning about extremism and what we call social significance help us stem the tide of white extremism within this country? How is what we're learning actually help us to develop modules that can be launched into the social media space to be able to dismantle the impacts of disinformation? So we're building out all of these incredible research directions to try to apply in these different spheres. And then finally, the fourth direction of MindBridge is our Healing Racial Trauma Initiative. So this is really taking a look at political, collective, and racialized trauma in our communities. So we are race, racism, pain, harm, and oppression have long-term psychological, physiological impacts on the communities who experience it. How can we create permanent structures of healing? And how can we connect those structures of healing such that they are maintained long-term? Some of the Achilles heel of some of the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions is that they didn't take into consideration how hard it is to give testimony. They didn't take into consideration the kind of vicarious trauma that can happen through the process of witnessing and listening. And as beautiful as it is to witness and listen, it can also really cause harm. And I think we see this in the kind of secondary and vicarious traumatization that we see within our police, within ER folks, right? They weren't actually there, but you know, in some cases they're there, but you hear the stories and it impacts you. And what happens in communities is we see that unless you actually deal with the long-term healing, violence will come back because you didn't actually heal the underlying unconscious implicit process that was there the harm that was there. So the Healing Racial Trauma Initiative is really about healing, particularly focusing and centering marginalized and vulnerable communities to create long-term wellness and resiliency. You came to my attention when I talked to Jackie Payne at uh, Galvanize Action. I guess you had worked with her on some of her projects. Can you tell me a little bit about when and where or to what degree you've gotten involved in sort of U.S. political stuff. Yeah, it's kind of a weird fine line, right? You know, we're a 501c3 that's a human rights organization. And um, <laughs> and it kind of feels like there's a joke somewhere in here. You know, the human rights defender walks into a bar and meets like three progressives, you know. I'm waiting for the punchline. I know <laughs> somebody who's smarter than me is going to come up with a good joke around this. You know, it's, it's, it, there's something there for sure. Um you know, it's it's interesting. I've I've had the great benefit of working with small, large organizations, governmental organizations, intergovernmental, non-governmental organizations now on five continents. And irrespective of where I go, whether it's Australia or Kazakhstan or Poland or Mexico or whatever, 
people have a language around human rights. They know about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. They generally have an idea of human rights being this collection of inherent rights to the right to life and liberty, freedom from slavery and torture, freedom of opinion, expression, the right to work, have education, health care, all these things. Right? But when I come to the United States, we don't have this language. And there are some very real historical reasons why we don't have this language that, you know, if we have time, we can get into later, but um, which is terribly ironic because the United States was at the helm of this, right? At the, the creation of the Declaration of Human Rights, it was Eleanor Roosevelt who was chair of the commission. So the United States was really leading this path. And due to some reasons that are really rooted in racism, this language never took hold within the United States, took hold everywhere else, but it didn't take hold here. So when I come home, people are like, civil rights, Martin Luther King. I'm like, oh yeah, sort of, kind of, you know, but, um, but we don't have this, which is really too bad because it's quite an effective way to deny people of their human rights if they don't know anything about them. And it's quite an effective way to divide and conquer when all of these different sectors don't understand that they're fundamentally talking about the same thing. And what I see is that while other parts of the world talk about these issues and talk about it in the frame of human rights, I think Americans and the progressive movement have moved this into a political sphere because they don't have any other language. And I remember listening to um, a uh, expert in communications within the political sphere. And in one podcast, she was really kind of going off on this. And she was naming all of these different things that the progressive movement does. And she kind of stopped, she took a breath and she's like, yeah, you know, and in any other functioning country, we would call this human rights. And then she kind of kept going. Um, and I was like, yeah, you're right, actually. Literally in any other country, we do in fact talk about this as human rights, but here in the United States, we don't. We talk about this as progressives, and it takes on a political tone, a divisionary tone, an us versus them, kind of almost inherently within our own language, when in fact we are talking about something that fundamentally makes us human. So, and I, and I talked to you earlier about this existential crisis that human rights defenders are having, you know, and kind of continue to have, you know, this death of human rights. Um, and, uh, and interestingly enough, uh, I, I'm sure you must have talked about this elsewhere in your podcast. It's interesting to also see this within the democratic or progressive movement as well. You know, if you want to doom scroll it all and you're not getting enough of it from social media, you can kind of just Google democracy and dying. And then all of these articles start kind of, you know, strewing down. It's the same, it is the exact same conversation that human rights defenders are having in other parts of the world. We are having it literally in parallel to one another. What are some of the hot topics, right? Anti-Asian bias, Black Lives Matter, reproductive freedom, gender equality, LGBTQ, economic freedom, social inequality, so forth and so on, access to healthcare, all of these topics are human rights topics. For me, when I come home to the United States, for a while, I didn't quite understand why I kept kind of landing in the progressive sphere. I was like, isn't that kind of weird? Isn't it that human rights defenders kind of monitor government structures? We don't generally tend to get involved, but I, I think it's fundamentally because what we're doing is human rights. Um, we just kind of haven't started that conversation yet. Earlier, you talked about sort of 
healing in historically oppressed communities, I was wondering if the psychologically damaged people were not also the oppressor communities or however you would label them. I feel like the former Confederates, the slaveholders and their descendants and their ideology in this country is one of the areas where we have opposition, right? It's one of the axes on which we are polarized right now. And is there like a similar trauma that they need to be healed from? And have you tackled anything like that? Or is seeing it that way in any way helpful? Yeah, absolutely, actually. I'm thinking about the work of Dr. Joy DeGruy. She's the author of the racialized slave syndrome or racial trauma concept. And there's a really famous video on YouTube and you can pop her into YouTube, Joy DeGruy. And you'll see it's a little um, grayed out. It's an older video. It's not the best quality ever. She's on a podium next to a screen. And the screen is a picture of a lynching. So you have the battered dead body of a black man hanging from the tree. And you see surrounding this scene, the members of the white community that have gathered. And if you had sort of blocked out the tree, you might think that this was kind of like a festival, you know, that there's some sort of gathering event. And she points to the children that are there. And she says, and I'm paraphrasing terribly, but she says something to the effect of, how might this have impacted those kids that were there? And I remember when I first saw that video and it really opened up a lens that, wow, we are really a traumatized society all the way around. And we are experiencing almost the sustainment of a collective traumatization. Like we haven't quite come to terms with it that it's painful to look at that stuff. It is really hard to look at it honestly and heal it. Um, Resma Menachem, who does a lot of work within the racial trauma sphere, is a licensed clinical social worker, um, author of My Grandmother's Hands, talks about, you know, that kind of like good pain that comes from that healing work that needs to be done. But because it's hard and it's painful, we tend to kind of push it away right? We're like, that pain is bad. I shouldn't go near it. I'm going to kind of push that away. And I see this a lot um, in communities. I mean, we all have an orientation with us versus them, but particularly among like extremist, white nationalist kind of organizations and so forth and so on. And so for sure, when I work with these communities, I am working with these communities from a trauma-informed lens, from the word go. The second I show up in a group, there's a whole series of mechanisms I'm thinking about, experiences that I anticipate are there. I will fundamentally understand and self-acknowledge that they are happening on an unconscious level that they probably don't even realize are working and that it is my job to meet them at a place that honors their humanity. 
in that moment, meeting people in that fundamental place of their humanity is not only the greatest gift and way I can respect them, but it's the greatest way that I can help to partner with them in their healing so that we can create this change that we want to see happen. Me battling them will in fact send them in the other direction, will crystallize, will strengthen those orientations that that person is bad or that group is bad. The United States right now is undergoing increasing polarization. There are people radicalizing increasingly on the right. It's fairly acute. It's not as bad as in some of the other countries that that you uh, follow, but there's potential to walk down a road that we don't want to walk down. What does the experience that you have accumulated suggest in terms of what we should be doing differently in the progressive space and beyond? You've observed that sometimes you try something and the result is actually to worsen the situation. I think we're doing a lot of things along those lines. It's hard to figure out how much to fight, how much to try to join hands with some another side that is that is saying horrible things. What would you advise progressive activists, democratic politicians, and just the country? What could we do to heal the country and and save ourselves from going down authoritarian roads or more polarization and potential violence? What can we do to heal the country? Goodness, is that all? I don't know I'm going to be able to give you all like the answer to, to our salvation, but I have three thoughts that I'll share. Okay. So the first one is that I really, really want people to take the time and invest in understanding these underlying implicit unconscious processes that if we're going to change hearts and minds, we really got to know how they work. And again, because what I said before about the ironic effects is true. A bunch of why we're seeing the worsening in some ways is that we're, we're signaling these ironic effects in our policies, in our approach, in our programming, in our media, in our communications, in our outreach. And I work with organizations and I see the way in which the very best of intentions that they are moving forward in a given design. But I know from my perspective that they move forward in that design, it's going to actually backfire. And so I really, really, really wish that people would sort of just hit the pause button for a sec and just take some time to learn about these things. Because I ultimately think people would also save a lot of money in, say, rapid message testing and what have you, because they would be far more knowledgeable and would know from the get-go what might work rather than hoping that after their rapid message testing that they'll get kind of a few afterwards, if that makes sense, you know. So I really want us to spend a little bit of time and, and kind of understand some of these things. The second thing, um, and you might hate this, <laughs> you might hate this, but I realized that this podcast is called The Great Battlefield. I really want us to move away from this us and them mentality that in very many ways, 
we, and I'm going to say we as progressives for a moment, that we as progressives, there is no better way in creating an us by creating a them. And that in many ways, our own rhetoric, our direction, our ideology increases, galvanizes, propels an us versus them orientation that ultimately undermines the very transformation that we want to see happen. Anat Shankar um, Othario, I think is her last name, again, communications expert, talks about you feed what you fight. You feed what you fight. And I think this is very much the same thing. People who are smarter than me have actually written on this very topic and have said that we have a kind of addiction to this us versus them orientation, that we are so used to this and we have so much of ourselves kind of wrapped up in this meaning that to change it is fundamentally painful. It's like having an addiction. You're going to go into withdrawal. And so rather than do that, rather than changing it in the way that we, I think, kind of know that we need to change it, we don't. And then we have to rationalize why we're not doing it. We have to come up with a reason why we're not doing it. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh, at the time of his passing, there was this poem being circulated or statement where he says, what if we had no enemies? What if we had no enemies? Well, what would that fundamentally mean by the way we do this work? And, you know, and he was not a stranger to violence, right? Like he was, you know, ousted from his home country. He was a political refugee, had to leave Vietnam because of his descent of the war, had to move to France. And because of all of his political, you know, in a way, activism in his own way, he was nominated by Martin Luther King Jr. for a Nobel Peace Prize. So, so he is really kind of speaking to this direction of how do we heal this trauma, this collective trauma that you brought up before? How do we fundamentally really move us towards these human rights things? How can we move ourselves to human rights orientation if we fundamentally aren't working with each other as humans, as a collective entity. So I think that there is something in our approach that is undermining the change that we want to see happen. And, and I wish we would redirect course. And the third thing that I'll leave us with um, is that I really want us to think long-term. That we tend to be hyper-oriented in the United States towards kind of the four-year election cycle. If the brain has evolved over hundreds of thousands of years of evolution, and we are embrained animals in a country that has been established over hundreds and hundreds of years of culture, society, structure, policy, and practice, and we are beings who are decades and decades and decades old, this is an extraordinarily robust system that is not going to change in like a six-month campaign. So we really need to think long-term. And that if our goal is that, is healthcare, is stopping racism, is LGBTQ plus rights, then we need to really think about the long game and change the way that we're playing this. You know, in as much as my podcast is called Great Battlefield, I think there's a healthy battlefield when you have two healthy or two or more healthy political parties that are competing on ideas and uh, and not uh, lying about each other and and trying to trick the population into supporting them by various ways or cheating or threatening violence or all of the the sick ways that sometimes uh, things can devolve. 
I mean, I also have tried to include very, very deliberately people in the podcast who are trying to help us talk across the divide, who are trying to bring us together. And I think there's, there is that tension among politicians about, you know, like you'll see that with Biden. He has a themes about bringing us together. He's trying not to let the Ukraine conflict split on partisan lines. Other people are working to do the opposite on both sides to some extent. It's a challenge for every citizen and leader in this country to navigate that choice. In every conversation you have on a bus, do you treat that other person as a human or do you figure out whether they're a Trumpist and think the less of them and get into a fight or whatever, right? We have that on every level and we have a lot of people being irresponsible. I don't know how to spread the the leadership or the responsibility around on that, but it's part of, of the life that we're living right now. Let me, I just take a specific instance of something that troubled me and fits right into your area, I think. So we just had this uh, Supreme Court hearing and we had a right-wing senator wave a children's book called Anti-Racist Baby up in a obvious effort to fuel the backlash against people who are trying to fight against the legacy of racism. And they probably picked a fairly caricaturable symbol of that by a prominent author. How do you understand that moment? Were there mistakes made uh, on the left to get to that place where we're getting backlash or is the only mistake the ignorance of that senator? Or how do you think about that moment? In the hearing for the first female African-American justice who's fully qualified, it's just one of the disgusting, gross moments. We're talking about like being able to be in conversation with people like that. How do you think about that situation? Well, I mean, you're, you're watching me grimace right in in real time right now right i've got like my hand at my head and twitching a little bit about this you know the kind of gross displays of of racism discrimination power and privilege out for everyone to see here ignorance just rampant ignorance or pretending to be ignorant and just using other people's ignorance to try to rally your side Right. Okay. So there's, there's a lot of layers and, and, you know, perhaps this is a different podcast too, but like, there's so much here, right? What you just alluded to, you know, obviously Ted Cruz is not innocent in this. This was signaling a whole mess of things in that moment. And so it's incredibly manipulative. And so there are those out there who purposefully prey on existing fears, divisions, orientations, group ideology, social identity threat, blah, 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 all the terms. You know, somebody once said to me that politicians in some ways were kind of um, emotional entrepreneurs for the public. And I think that this was a very good example of that. And I think that it is very clear that Judge Jackson and the kind of blatant racism that is on display, the misogynoir, the intersectionality of gender misogyny 
and racism is here in all of its glory. I'm going to shift our lens for a second to the general public and all of the fear that has been happening, um, the, the trends within the United States that we have seen on critical race theory and so on and so on. There's been some research that has been tracking white identifying individuals and their support of racial equity kind of writ large. And we might be able to um, symbolize that as support for BLM. George Floyd, murder of George Floyd, Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, among many, many others happens. We are in the midst of a pandemic. We see the resurgence, the, the, the rise of BLM again in this moment. And everybody and their grandmother has like, you know, at least in my communities have BLM signs up and flags and everybody's going to the protests. And, and I remember listening to very many podcasts, including um, the Association for Black Psychologists talking about, you know, wow, maybe this symbolizes like a true allyship. Maybe we are really seeing this transformation. Finally, this opportunity for reckoning and healing within our country. Maybe this is it, you know. And then, so you see on the stats, there's a New York Times article on this, you see on the stats this rise of um, white identifying support for BLM, and then afterwards, a sharp decline. And not just a decline to baseline, but a decline below baseline, and a maintaining of that below baseline, which then signifies that not only did these very same people that were all on the picket lines not support BLM, but that they didn't go to neutral. They actually had outgroup member derogation. So having that kind of racial antipathy, so feeling negatively, discriminatory, violent towards those that they perceive as other with a capital O. And in the United States, that often means race. And in the United States, it often means brown and black communities. So what do we do with that? And so there's been some preliminary work um, by Mindbridge and our colleagues and others that have been trying to understand this. In psychology, sociology, and many other different disciplines, you can understand racism. We have this term racism here in the United States. But from a psychological perspective, it might be a whole slew of different processes happening. It might be blatant dehumanization. It might be that you truly think that someone is less than human. It might be a lack of familiarity and then buying into these kind of societal racist tropes that our culture and society gives us. It might be that. Or it might be something else entirely that is simply signaling as racism, but it's actually something else. And I'm going to come back to that in a second. My husband is a pediatric gastroenterologist, and he one night was fielding a phone call from a parent. Um, Kiddo was sick, had stomach pains. And so he was trying to ferret out as an expert what this was, because for him, it could be just be constipation or it could be appendicitis. And, and how he made the call might impact whether this kid live or dies. But on the surface, it presented as a stomach pain. So he was asking questions as to what this really was. And we're doing the same thing in this case, too. Like, what is this really here, folks? Those same people who were on the picket lines, pro-BLM, suddenly nosedived to anti-race apathy. 
Is it that they suddenly became extraordinary racists or is there something else? And so some of the question is turning to um, what at Mindbridge what we call social significance or this feeling that people are being devalued as a social group. And you see this in this rejection of, even though this isn't the proper application, but you see this rejection of critical race theory and what have you. People kind of talking about, you know, I, w- I don't want my kid to feel bad about themselves. It's more about themselves and their group ideology and how they feel about themselves um, steeped in power and privilege than it necessarily is about dehumanization of the other. And so I'm confused by your analysis here. My guess would be, and and I and I'm not sure I haven't studied it, but my guess would be that the turning point between those positive feelings and the dip below whatever came before had to do with the highlighting of violence in certain areas and the efforts by those on the right to harness that overreach or those incidents to make it look like the BLM movement had negative characteristics of the success, the success of the right in, in coloring it that way, using some of the ammunition that they were handed. Is, isn't that part of it? Isn't that why public opinion turned? You know, again, the unsatisfying answer is that it's a both and and moment, right? Like we don't. Because I don't understand what you were saying about like why it would turn. I don't understand like what your, uh, argument was public opinion peaks and then falls. Why? I mean, something accessed that underlying, that implicit, whether it was bias or whatever, that was in some, that was part of the makeup of some subset of the people that, that were the switchers, right? So it's a both and and moment. So, you know, in any study that someone might run, you might have a confluence of 20 different variables that are present, right? You've got media, you've got outreach, you've got disinformation, you've got the advent of a pandemic and how that people experience that. You have underlying social economic patterns and so forth and so on. You've got all those things. And in that, it becomes important to understand what are the bigger nodes, like what are the big ones that might be really kind of driving this train and how might they be influencing each other? So, for example, if you have a community that fundamentally believes in kind of, you know, this fair worldview, that the idea that the world is fair and right and just, and if you can't succeed, then there's something fundamentally wrong with you, right? And that not only is there something fundamentally wrong with you, but it becomes this extraordinary judgment in your character and your ability to kind of live up to these human qualities that we perceive as being good and righteous. So this kind of fair world view tends to be administered, particularly against marginalized and vulnerable communities. You know, this idea of just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. What's the matter with you kind of thing. So when you find communities that tend to generate themselves in that way, And now suddenly they're not doing as well. The economics aren't happening as well as they might have wanted them and that there's a tension being placed on others. One might think, oh, well, then they might start thinking that about themselves. But we can't do that. 
it's too painful to think that about ourselves. So we're going to start to project or dissociate out to somebody else and kind of scapegoat that other person that it's their fault why this isn't happening. And so as we see this kind of struggle amongst, say, white families, that that sort of fear and threat gets bumped up against conservative right-leaning orientations that then have understood the values within those communities, have hooked on to said values of those communities to then align themselves with said communities and then galvanize this kind of interracial fear and distrust and animosity and discrimination Because to bring us back to the beginning of our talk together, there is no better way to create an us by creating a them. So is it right that it just was super easy because of what you could access to turn the tide from positive to negative about that movement? Yeah, I mean, it's both. You know, I've said as I do these workshops for groups, you know, these as groups learn about these processes, you know, they learn about kind of this orientation, this us versus them orientation that's sort of inherent to who we are as humans. And in some ways, this is like rolling a ball downhill. It's almost easier to do this. And it's almost easier to do this because in some ways, we're biologically kind of oriented in this direction. We're also oriented for great empathy and altruism too, but that's a larger discussion. So we're sort of oriented in that direction. And then you've got what came before that, which was already sort of fear and distrust and projecting because of what we talked about, about, you know, feeling displaced and that, you know, not enough opportunities and so forth and so on. And now you place this in the context of a pandemic when we're already kind of triggered at the wazoo, right? And we talked earlier about we will withdraw to our in-group during moments of perceived threat. And while isn't polarization that in this case, this is toxic polarization. Like, isn't that like constantly this feeling of being threatened, this constant kind of, you know, you are on the line to your imminent destruction and demise. So all of these things converge together really hyper effectively to create a population that is just primed like, like, whoa, to hate somebody who looks differently from them. And in the United States, because we are built on the history of this, it is easy to hook into that narrative. If this was Myanmar, it became the Rohingya, right? We weren't going to have that exact same conversation in Myanmar because we're not going to have it about black folk and slavery within Myanmar. It's a different social, cultural, historical circumstance. But in the United States, because of this legacy of slavery, harm, and oppression, it is easy for us to hook into that narrative that is ever present and continues to affect marginalized and vulnerable communities. If you look at across countries, there are times when they split up and have civil wars. There's times when they overcome problems and come together and, and have like real togetherness. Like what, what gives you any optimism about us being able to overcome the forces that are trying to split us apart and pull together as a, as a people and as a, as a nation. Right. At some point, you kind of need to be an optimist to continue to do this work. Hence my question. (laughs) (laughs) I I'm reminded about 
Steven Pinker, Harvard academic, author of Better Angels of Our Nature. So this is a very long book, um, but you might get most of it in the introduction. And, and so he's talking about, you know, like, really, really, folks, like things are getting better. I know that things seem like they're getting worse, but they're actually getting better. And here's all the reasons why they're actually getting better. And he cites the things like, you know, we're dying actually of old age now. That was never a situation. He cites things like, yeah, you know, um, our media, all you see is pain, dying, and death. A friend of mine who's a journalist once said, if it bleeds, it leads, you know, and, and so he's like, of course, we have this orientation to the negative because that's all we're seeing. But there's like great, beautiful, empathic, altruistic things that happen every day. It's just not advertised on the World Wide Web. Um, and then he came to this other point that, that really struck me. And he said that our morality outpaces our reality. And I was like, our morality outpaces our reality, meaning that we want these things and we want them in the here and now, but you know what? It's going to take a little bit of time. But the fact that we want them in the here and now, we didn't want them a hundred years ago. The things that we're talking about are actually pretty new. And it's like feeling the early echoes of the transformation that is ultimately inevitable in that way, if we keep working towards it. And I found that to be the most hopeful thing I had ever heard. And so every time I hear from a reproductive freedom activist, when every time I talk to LGBTQ or anti-racism trainer or what have you, and I hear them talk to me about, this is the work I'm doing in the world. I think about Steven Pinker and I'm like, that's, that's the echo that precedes the transformation. That's what gives me hope. You know, it also makes me wonder if if one of the hope assets is the complexity and the humanity of the other side for all of their willingness to mock anti-racism. Maybe they have a human side too. most of the bad people, as you might quickly assess them, are complex people that want many of the similar things. Right. And that and we have to find a way to reach that side of them, not just the side that is damaged and is causing trouble and is our nemesis. I think you're exactly right. And I think the good news in that, too, is that that's available now. It's not something we need to wait on. It's available now if we choose to do it. for all except for your extreme psychopaths. Anyway, uh, it has been great, Laura, to talk to you. I wonder if there's a question that I didn't ask you that you wish I had. <laughs> I can't think of it if that's the case. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> but sometimes that does provoke a, a, an interesting response. But we've had a, a good chat. Anything else you want to say? No, this has been a lot of fun. And, and thank you for asking me thought-provoking questions. And uh, yeah, we'll see where this goes from here. Thank you. That was Laura Liguri. Laura is at mindbridgecenter.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield 
in places where podcasts are found.